You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, first chapter of the Gospel of John, and we will read together verses 29 through 34, and we'll open our time in prayer. John, chapter 1, verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Let's bow together. Our Father, we come now to Your Word, and it is our desire that You would speak to us through Your Word. May we hear the voice of our God and the Word of our God. We ask, Lord, that You would open our eyes and open our hearts to understand and to behold wonderful things from Your Word. We commit this time to You and pray for Your assistance to that end. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, today is a big day in the Osmond household, and I mean a big day, big, big day. Because November 8th is the day that according to Deidre's tradition with her family, we get to start listening to Christmas carols. Not November 7th, not November 9th, but always November 8th. Because there is nothing like two months of Christmas carols to put you in the Christmas spirit. Or an asylum. Either one of those two. And so I'm finally able to sort of make the connection, at least in my own heart, between the Word made flesh and the Gospel of John and singing about the Word made flesh for the next two months until Christmas gets here. And I'm happy to do it. I enjoy it because I love a lot of the Christmas carols that we sing. Um, the struggle for me is never to get burned out on Christmas carols before I actually, we actually get to Christmas. And there's one particular Christmas carol, and I've mentioned this in the past, or Christmas hymn actually, that is my favorite. And that is the one by Charles Wesley, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And I think it is the second verse of that that says, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And of course, Emmanuel means God with us. It's one of the most phenomenal declarations of the deity of Jesus Christ in the flesh that you could possibly hope to put into song. It is just beautiful. Veiled as, uh, sorry, what was it? Veiled in flesh. Veiled in flesh. My favorite hymn. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. So we're looking at John chapter 1, which speaks of the Word made flesh. And we are looking at the glories of the Word made flesh. And the Gospel of John just seems to unpack or unfold for us one manifest glory of the Lord Jesus Christ after another. It is just one glory after another all the way through the book. And we're going to see that unfold. And there's seems to be nobody able to expound upon the glories of Christ quite like John the Baptist, who is this character that we've been looking at in the last few weeks. We have looked at his identity, who he was. We have looked at his ministry, what he came to do and what he was doing. And then beginning last week and continuing and finishing it up today, we're looking at John's 
testimony, what it is that he said about Christ. And in verses 29 through 34, John unfolds for us one glory of the person and work of Christ after another. And we just last week barely got started with, and we have, well, we actually finished verse 29, which is just the beginning of John's testimony. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we look at what that was, that Jesus, this is one of the aspects of his character and his work, his person and his work, that he is the sacrifice for sin. He is a substitutionary sacrifice, that is, he died in the place of sinners, and he is a sufficient sacrifice to take away the sin of the whole world. His death is sufficient to atone for and to pay the price of any and all who will believe. If the whole world were to believe, Jesus' death would be sufficient to pay the penalty. It was sufficient to pay the penalty for their sin. So that was the sort of Jesus as the sacrifice. And now we're going to look today at verses 30 through 34. Kind of a big chunk, and there's a lot that is there that we need to give our attention to. Verses 30 through 34. Let me give you sort of a, a little outline for these verses. In verse 29, we saw Jesus as a sacrifice. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now look at verse 30. In verse 30, we see Jesus as supreme or superior. This is He on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. That is the supremacy of Christ. Then in verses 31 through 33, we see Jesus and His relationship with the Holy Spirit. Verse 31 says, I did not recognize Him, but so that He might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I've seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and He remained upon Him. I did not recognize Him. That is, John didn't recognize Jesus. I did not recognize Him, but He who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon Him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Notice the repetitive mention of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 34, we see Jesus as the Son in His relationship to the Father. Verse 34 says, I have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So if you like alliteration, Jesus as the sacrifice, Jesus as supreme, Jesus and the Spirit, and Jesus as the Son, finally in verse 34. So we're going to look at those last three. We covered the sacrifice, and there's a lot in here that deserves our attention, and I hope you're going to be as amazed as I am that we get through this as fast as we do. So you're going to have to sort of hold on because we've got a lot of sort of theological stuff to cover, as it were. So let's begin with verse 30, Jesus as supreme. This is he, on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So, somewhat familiar words, and we're not going to take too much time because we've already seen this sort of re- mentioned twice earlier. Look over at verse 15 of chapter 1. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Then look at verse 27, which we've already looked at. It's he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. You see the theme of what John's developing there? He says the same thing. This is now the third time that he has reiterated the same identical thing. That that is, that Jesus is supreme. He has supremacy. He is of infinite value and infinite worth. He is infinite in His person. He is far greater than I. That is what John has said. And this is now the third time that John has said it. He is a one-note canary, is He not? He just seems to have one thing to say and He says it over and over and over. He says it. And then he says it again. And then he says, this is what I said when I said what I said. Just over and over again. You and I kind of... Let me make a confession to you. Several years ago, uh, this was a number of years ago, when we first started our Awana ministry, I used to get, um, I used to rack my brains and get all anxious over trying to come up with a gospel message for one of our Awana events, whether it was the fun fair or the 
awards night or the Grand Prix. We had three of those a year. And, and I did the gospel presentation at all of them. And after you do that for two or three years, your creativity sort of starts to run out. And I remember sort of racking my brains, thinking to myself, I need to come up with some way to say something new to this crowd that they have never heard before. Some way of presenting this that sort of has a, a new twist, a new turn, a new idea, some new way that they've never seen this before. Be real creative, Jim. And it used to just tax me. And I remember a specific instance when I was sitting down and I was trying to come up with something new, something relevant, something quirky or some new angle, some novel approach. And I remember thinking to myself, this is so difficult because the message never changes. Then I said to myself, this has got to be the easiest thing in the world because the message never changes. It's the fact that the message never changes that makes it so profound. And so then I realized... I don't have to get up and put some new, novel, uh, neat approach on it that somebody else has never seen or heard of. I just need to get up and say the same thing that has been said for 2,000 years that has never changed. So I don't try and get up. Now now listen, the sort of what I might use to introduce it or the idea that I might use to sort of get people's attention, that I try and change that up. I don't just say the same thing every time. But the substance of the message, what I get up there to say, I, I say the same thing every single time. It's always just the same thing. It's the gospel. You notice that John here just simply says the same thing that he's always been saying. This is he. This is the Lamb of God. This is the one who is greater than I. This is the one who is coming. He is the one. Look to him. Look to him. He's of preeminent value and infinite worth. He's greater than I am and I'm nothing and he's everything. That's all John had to say. That's all that John did say. And he just kept repeating it over and over and over again. Then I thought that back through all of the gospel presentations in the book of Acts. And you guess what? They're all the same. It didn't matter whether it was Peter and John or, or Philip or Paul. It's the same message. Different crowds, different audiences. Yeah, sometimes different words, but it was just the same message. Paul just said, I preach Christ and Him crucified. What do the Greeks want? Wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The Greeks want wisdom. You get up to present the Gospel to the Greeks, and what are the Greeks asking themselves? Oh, we want to hear something new, something novel, something we haven't heard before. Give us the eloquence, the oratory. Give us the articulateness. Enunciate for us. Give us something profound, something wise, something great. And to the Jews, Paul said, the Jews want signs. Perform a sign for us. Demonstrate a miracle for us. Do something that will authenticate it. And what did Paul say? Did Paul say, so I give to the Greeks wisdom and I give to the Jews signs? He says, I give to neither Jews nor Greeks what they want. The Greeks want wisdom. The Jews want signs. And I don't give anybody what they want. But I preach Christ and Him crucified which to the Greeks was foolishness. The Greeks want wisdom. Paul says, I give them foolishness in the message. The Jews want a sign. Paul says, I don't give them a sign. I give them a stumbling block, an offense. I get up and I offend the Jews. What kind of consumeristic, sort of seeker-sensitive mentality is that? It's not at all. Just Christ and Him crucified. To Jews, to Greeks, whatever the audience. Paul was a one-note parakeet as well as John the Baptist. Just the same thing over and over again. Don't ever fall into the trap of thinking to yourself, before I can present the gospel to my friends, my family, my co-workers, the people around me, the people I see, I have to come up with some new novel approach, some new way of presenting it, some new words, some new angle that they've never seen before. Something new that nobody has tried. You'll spend the rest of your life trying to come up with a way to present the gospel. You just present the gospel because the message never changes. And worse yet, Don't ever fall into the trap of thinking that the effectiveness in presenting the gospel rests upon your ability to come up with some new novel approach or angle. 
Because it doesn't. The power behind the message is the gospel itself. It is the power of God unto salvation. So John was a very, very single-minded, single-message type preacher. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one, though He came after me, existed before me. And I want you to notice in verse 30, in the words of John, two things that are mentioned that seem to us to be impossible to put together, but they're taught in the same phrase, the same sentence. That is the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. Now, we've looked at the deity of Christ in verses 1 through 14, or 1 through 13 of chapter 1. We talked about Him being God in the form of God. He who existed as God and was with God in the beginning, the Creator of all things, the light and the life. We've talked about the humanity of Jesus in verse 14, that the Word was made flesh and tabernacled and dwelt among us. But now in verse 30, those two ideas are put together into one sentence. John says in verse 30, This is He on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man. That is an affirmation of His humanity. He is a man. He is fully man. He is fully human. He is subject to the same weaknesses that you and I were subject to, though without sin. He was tempted as you and I are tempted, though without sin. He had no uh, propensities to sin. He knew no sin. He did no sin. He was not a sinner in any way. He had no sin in Him. But he was fully a man. And John affirms that. After me comes a man who existed before me. That's the deity. He existed before me. He is a man and yet he is God. Nobody sitting here existed before you were conceived in your mother's womb. Nobody did. But Jesus is different. Jesus, the Christ, the Word is different. He existed before He came to earth. Even though John was conceived before Jesus, he was born before Jesus, he started ministering before Jesus, Jesus existed before John did. So there in the one sentence, after me comes a man, that is his humanity, who existed before me, that is his deity. And John puts them both together. We have the man who pre-existed as God. And he became a man. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now John, I think, clarifies, this is the one of whom I said this. You notice that? And John, the Gospel writer, doesn't tell us when John the Baptist said this, but John the Baptist had been saying this. There was coming a one who existed before me. He's greater than I. And now John says, this is the one. When Jesus comes in verse 29, He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one about whom I said He's greater than I. Now, why did John clarify that? You know why I think it is? Did the Jews expect their Messiah to be introduced as a Lamb? A Lamb does not in your mind conjure up images of greatness and grandeur and majesty and power and strength. The idea of a lamb communicates death and sacrifice and dying and weakness and meekness and innocence and smallness. And yet John all the time had been saying there's one coming who's great. He's great. He's infinitely great. He's superior. He's preeminent. He's above all. Before all. He existed before all. He's coming. He's coming here. Prepare prepare the way for Him. And then when He arrives on the scene, He says, Behold the Lamb of God. But now He has to clarify it. Lest anybody there think to himself, Okay, this is the Lamb. That can't be the one who is coming who's great. We need to wait now for the one who's coming who's great and preeminent. John says, Behold the Lamb. This is the one who is so great that I have told you about and that I've been telling you about. This is the one that I told you existed before me even though He came after me. That's why he clarifies it. It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And He existed before the world. And He existed before me. And He is of infinite value and infinite worth, John says. 
I want you to look now at verses 31 through 33. John now speaks of Jesus and the Spirit. Verses 31 through 33. I did not recognize Him, but so that He might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, has remained upon Him. I did not recognize Him, but He who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon Him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is a sacrifice in verse 29. Jesus is supreme or superior in verse 30. And now Jesus' relationship with the Spirit. These are interesting verses, 31 through 33, because there are a number of things that are mentioned twice. John the Baptist mentions not only that he did not recognize Jesus, he mentions that twice, and we'll get to what he means by that in a second. He also mentions the Spirit of God descending twice. He mentions the Spirit of God remaining on Jesus twice. And he mentions his own ministry of coming in to baptize in water twice. All of those things he mentions twice. And I think they're all significant. In verses 30 to 31 through 33, John the Baptist is describing a sign that he was given by him who sent him to baptize, that is the Father. John would, John had a prearranged sign by which he would know who it is that was the Messiah who would baptize in the Holy Spirit. Now John says, I didn't recognize him, but the one who sent me to baptize, that is God, said to me, here's the sign. Here's how you know the one who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. The one upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. That was a sign. That was one of the reasons for John's baptism. It was a sign to him of who this one was, who the individual was, who would baptize in the Spirit of God. And that's how John was to know uh, which one of those whom he baptized and who it was that was going to be the Messiah. Now, John says, I did not recognize him. You notice it's mentioned twice. Once at the beginning of verse 31. Once at the beginning of verse 33. That's kind of a perplexing statement, and here's why. We have to ask ourselves, what, what did John mean when he says, I did not recognize him? Because if you were to turn back to Matthew chapter 3, which I won't have you do right now, if you were to turn back to Matthew chapter 3, you would notice that when Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized, John the Baptist said to him, I have need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. Do you know what John was saying? I don't need to baptize you. You don't need to be baptized by me. You are greater than I am. I should be submitting to being baptized by you. Now, John recognized there in Matthew chapter 3 that this one that he was about to baptize was preeminent, was superior to him, was greater than him, and even confesses Jesus' sinlessness. That's why John didn't understand why Jesus was coming to be baptized by him. He was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And John knew that much. So then, later on now, in verses 31 and 33, when John says, I did not recognize Him, what did John mean? In what way did he not recognize Him? Because when he baptized Jesus, he certainly recognized Him. He recognized Him, or at least knew who He was, and knew of His value in His Word. Knew He was sinless. So what does John mean, I did not recognize Him? It's repeated. So why did he repeat it? Why did he emphasize that? Now, some have suggested that there's some possibility to this. I'm not, I don't lean toward this position. But some have suggested that what John meant was, I didn't know Jesus by sight. In other words, they had grown up, John the Baptist had grown up in Judea, down in the wilderness outside of Jerusalem. Jesus grew up up in Nazareth and Galilee. And though they were related, probably cousins, and though Elizabeth and Mary were related, and they knew each other, and though Elizabeth knew who John the 
uh, Jesus was, who Mary was, and who the baby was to be born of Mary. Because you find out from Luke chapter 2 that when Mary visited Elizabeth, Elizabeth, the baby inside of Elizabeth, that's John the Baptist, uh, did something in the womb, was filled with the Holy Spirit. She recognized that. And Elizabeth said, who am I that I should be visited by the mother of my Lord? Elizabeth knew what was in Mary's womb. Elizabeth knew what the plan was there. And so, how did John the Baptist not recognize Jesus? Well, some have said they, even though they may be related, they never saw each other. So cousins who never saw, I have a few cousins that I wish that I didn't see very often. Maybe that's how Jesus and John grew up. Sort of separated, and until the baptism, Jesus and John had never seen each other, and John didn't recognize him by sight, even though he knew of him. He didn't, wasn't able to pick him out of the crowd. I think that's possible, not probable. I think there's a better way of understanding what John is saying, and it's this. John is saying, though I knew that he was infinitely greater than I am, what I did not recognize at the time was that this was the one who was going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. But he who sent me to baptize in water told me, upon whom the, the one upon whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one that's going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. I think that's the connection that John had not made prior to the baptism of Jesus. Yes, Jesus was great. Yes, Jesus was the Lamb of God. Yes, He was sinless. But the one thing John did not understand was that this was the one who would baptize in the Holy Spirit in fulfillment to all the Old Testament promises about the Messiah and the Spirit's work. And then when John saw the Spirit descending upon the Lord Jesus, that's when John said, I understand now the fullness of who He is. And John was able to bear testimony to who Jesus was. In other words, John had a high knowledge of Jesus, but it wasn't a complete knowledge of Jesus until that event, and that is when, by supernatural revelation, John understood who Jesus was. I didn't recognize him before that. That is the fullness of who he was. But when the Spirit descended and remained, then I understood this is the one who came to baptize in the Holy Spirit. He understood him as the Lamb of God before that, as the one, not only the Lamb of God, but also the one who had baptized in the Holy Spirit after that. Of course, you recognize that the Jews... When they read the Old Testament passages, remember Isaiah 53? Bruised for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace fell upon Him. He would die. He would pour out His soul even to death. The Jews read that and they said, it sounds like this is talking of the Messiah, but they couldn't understand how their Messiah could die. And then they would read other passages that spoke of the Messiah pouring out the Spirit of God on all mankind and the Messiah putting a new spirit in the hearts of His people and the Messiah ruling and reigning from the throne in Jerusalem, setting up this glorious kingdom and bringing in everlasting peace. And they didn't understand, how can the Messiah both die and reign? How, how, how's that going to happen? The missing piece was the resurrection and everything has taken place between the resurrection and the reign. But the Jews couldn't understand how those two things could be true. And so some of them said, well, maybe we've got two sort of messiahs. One who would come and die and bear the sin of the people and another who would come and reign as the son of David. Well, John here is saying the one who came to die for the sins of the people, the Lamb of God, is also the one who will baptize in the Spirit of God as the King of Israel. And at the baptism of Jesus, that's when John put those pieces together. That's my take on that passage. But then this brings up the question, why then was Jesus baptized by John, right? I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I said if John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, which it was, to prepare the way of the Lord for the Messiah and to prepare the hearts of people, and if he's preaching and calling people to repentance, then it seems a bit odd that Jesus would come to him and say, baptize me. Because Jesus is the sinless Son of God who knew no sin and had no sin. So what is Jesus doing taking part in and participating in and being baptized with the baptism of repentance since He had no sin to confess 
and no sin to repent of. I'm going to ask you to do something that I seldom ask you to do in a morning service, and that is to turn to another passage of Scripture. Keep your finger in John chapter 1, because we will come back there, and turn over to Matthew chapter 3. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 3. It's in Matthew chapter 3 that Jesus actually explains to John why John should baptize him. So we'll kind of put together some pieces here and answer the question, why was Jesus baptized with a baptism of repentance since he had no sin to repent of? Matthew chapter 3. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent. See the emphasis on repentance. You can see this, by the way, all the way through the passage. Watch for things that have to do with repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And that's how John was preparing the way of the Lord. Saying to people, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It's near. It's coming. It has arrived. It's at hand. So repent and prepare for it. So this is a baptism and a gospel. Uh, sorry, a baptism and a message of repentance. Verse 4, John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Kind of an... I've said this before, sort of an odd duck in every way, an outsider from everyone around him. Verse 5, then Jerusalem, was, then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. Crowds were coming out, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Notice the emphasis on repentance and confession of sin. Verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the breath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees came out to be baptized. John said, judgment is coming and you ought to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't come out here just to do the thing with the rest of these people. Don't come out here for any false pretenses. You guys are in trouble. Pharisees and Sadducees, you guys are in trouble. Judgment is coming and it has come and you're going to be thrown into unquenchable fire. So notice the emphasis on repentance again. Verse 11, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I and I'm not worthy to remove his sandals. Familiar language from John chapter 1. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barns but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Verse 11. Now listen, you get to the end of verse 12, and what have you read about? Repentance, judgment, repentance, turn from your sin, confess your sin, repentance, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Then in verse 13, then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. Huh? That doesn't seem right, does it? Repentance, 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 confess your sin, then Jesus shows up only to be baptized, to be baptized by John. And instantly we see something is not Something's not right here. It, this is not the type of individual that we should, should be submitting to John's baptism. Verse 14, But John tried to prevent him. And the Greek word actually meant he continued and perpetually persisted in preventing Jesus from being baptized by him. Saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And by the way, every pronoun in that sentence is emphasized in the Greek. I have need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me? In any case, John's mis- total misunderstanding of what Jesus was asking and requesting. Look, John was just as confused by this as you and I are. What are you coming to me to be baptized for? 
I'm the one that needs to be baptized by you. You have no need for a baptism of repentance. You shouldn't be out here being baptized with a baptism of repentance. So what did Jesus say? Verse 15, Jesus answering said to him, permitted at this time, that was an idiom, a figure of speech, that basically meant this, permit it on this occasion. Even though it seems inappropriate, it is appropriate, so permit it because it's an appropriate thing. So allow it this time is the idea. It may seem incongruous to you, it seems inappropriate, it seems out of keeping with standards that are right, but this is the right thing, so allow us to do this at this time. For in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him, and after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So John tried to permit Jesus. He said, You don't need to be baptized by me. I have need to be baptized by you. This seems wrong. This seems inappropriate to me. I don't understand how this is appropriate. Jesus said, Even though it seems inappropriate, allow it to be ha- happen, because it is appropriate. And then John baptized him. And Jesus said, It is fitting for us. This has to happen because it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what does that phrase mean? It literally means to fulfill every righteous requirement. This is necessary. So why is it? And let me sort of pull together not only from this passage, but other passages of Scripture. Why is it that Jesus was baptized by John? And I've come up with three reasons or three things that were accomplished there. Number one, from John chapter 1, it was the sign by which John the Baptist would know who it is that would baptize with the Holy Spirit, right? We saw that from John chapter 1. This is why I came baptizing with water, in order to manifest the Son of God to the nation of Israel. And when John saw that sign, the Spirit descending, he knew this is the one who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And John was then able to bear witness to Christ as the one who would baptize in the Holy Spirit. And through that baptism and everything that happened there, The Son of God, Jesus the Christ, was manifested to the nation of Israel. That's one reason. A second reason is to, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 3, to fulfill all righteous requirements. To fulfill God's righteous demands or righteous standards or righteousness. In order for John's ministry to be what God wanted it to be, he had to baptize the Messiah. In order for Jesus' ministry to be what it was to be, and in order for him to fulfill all of God's righteous requirements... Jesus had to submit to a baptism for sinners, though he was not a sinner. Um, Jesus oftentimes submitted to human institutions to which, this is key, to which he did not need to submit. In Matthew chapter 17, when it came time to pay the temple tax, Jesus asked Peter, from whom did the kings of the earth collect the taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Now, what's the answer to that question? From whom do the kings of the earth collect taxes? From their sons or from their, from strangers? Well, we know that the kings of the earth don't collect taxes from their sons or their cabinet members for that matter or anybody else in their administration. They were all tax exempt, apparently in that day as they are in our own day. But they do collect them from strangers, from everybody else. But the sons are exempt. And so Peter said that. Well, of course, the sons are exempt. And Jesus said, exactly, the sons are exempt. But lest we offend anybody, go catch a fish and you'll find the money in the mouth of the fish and we'll pay the temple tax. Now, did Jesus have to pay the temple tax? Was he required to pay the temple tax? It was his temple. He was the God worshipped in that temple. Everything in that temple was his. He owned the whole thing. He could destroy it. It was for his purposes. It was all dedicated to his glory. He didn't have to pay the temple tax. But he said to Peter, 
lest we offend anybody, go get the money for the tax. Jesus submitted to a tax that he didn't have to pay. He submitted to a human institution, just like he submitted to human authorities. He submitted to human governments, even though as God, he was over human governments and appointed human governments. So Jesus submitted to human institutions. So when he comes to John, Jesus is submitting to a human institution, which is John's baptism, ordained and appointed by God, and by doing so, he is validating John's ministry, validating John's message, and showing, I am a man, and I will submit to this, even though I have no need, because I'm also God. It was necessary for everybody else. It was not necessary for Jesus. A third reason is because Jesus, in being baptized with sinners, was identifying with sinners. He who knew no sin took his place among those who had no righteousness. He who had no sin of his own came as the Lamb of God to live among, to dwell among, and to take his place with sinners. Because he would then stand in the place of sinners. And he wasn't baptized vicariously as a substitute for others, but in being baptized with sinners, Jesus, the Son of God, was saying, I'm taking my stand among them. I am with them. I am identifying with this sinful humanity. Because he then, about three years later, would bear the sins of all those whom he were baptized with baptism of repentance. It was part of Jesus Christ identifying himself with the sinners whose sin he would bear. It was a perfect identification. So, in order to manifest himself to Israel, in order to submit to every valid, legitimate human institution, and then also in order to identify himself with the very sinners in whose place he would eventually stand, that is why Jesus was baptized by John. Make sense? You'll have to get it again and listen to it. Back to chapter 1 of the Gospel of John. Back to chapter 1 of the Gospel of John. John says, and he testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and He remained upon Him. This is the event that was described back in Matthew chapter 3. All three Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all mentioned this, this event at the baptism of Jesus. And John is saying, when I baptized Him, I saw the Spirit descending and remaining upon Him. And the one who sent me to baptize said, when you see that, that's the one that baptizes in the Holy Spirit. It was a sign by which John was able to determine or discern the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And all the Gospel writers record the Spirit of God descending as a dove upon Jesus at His baptism. And you've probably seen it in movies like I have if you've watched the Jesus film or the Matthew video or one of those where at the moment of Jesus' baptism there's that... And the dove comes down and lands on His shoulder in a bodily form. You've seen that? That's not what happened. Not what happened at all. Matthew and Mark describe the Spirit descending as a dove. Luke says it descended in bodily form, in bodily form as a dove, but it did not descend as a dove. In other words, it wasn't a physical dove that descended. It was some bodily form which descended upon Jesus at His baptism, and the descent was like a dove. How does a dove descend? Gently, gracefully, slowly. That's how a dove would descend. But it wasn't a, a literal physical dove that descended and landed on His shoulder or somehow overshadowed Him and then remained with Him or on Him. It was that the Spirit of God in bodily form descended as a dove would descend. Now, what did that look like? I don't know. I know Jesus knew and I know John knew. And here's what I found interesting as I read through all of the other baptism references in the other three Gospels. It never says that anybody in the crowd saw this. The Gospel writers are careful to say that John saw this and that Jesus saw this. But if anybody else in the crowd saw this or anybody standing around saw this, it's not mentioned by any of the Gospel writers. But it was a supernatural sign for John by which John would know 
who was the one who had baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then there was also the voice. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Did anybody else in the crowd hear the voice? We don't know. But we do know that Jesus heard it and we do know that John heard it. We know that Jesus saw the Spirit descend and John saw the Spirit descend. Whether anybody else saw that or heard that is, I think, a matter of speculation. I couldn't find any reference in any of the other Gospels to the crowd hearing or seeing what went on there that Jesus and John were privy to hearing and seeing. It's not mentioned that they, the crowd saw it. Maybe the crowd heard a noise from heaven but didn't discern the voice. That's happened other times in Scripture. Maybe they heard the noise and couldn't tell what it was or they couldn't understand what was being said. Maybe they saw something, but they didn't understand what they were seeing. Or maybe they were blinded and, and kept deaf from hearing and seeing that which John and Jesus heard and saw. But the Spirit descended on him like a dove and remained upon him. And John said, by this, that's how I know. This is the one who is going to baptize in the Spirit. Now, what is the baptism of the Spirit? Boy, this is the day for dealing with all kinds of fun stuff, isn't it? And I know you're as amazed as I am that we're getting through all of this as fast as we are. What is the baptism of the Spirit? The word baptism is baptizo in the Greek, and it means to immerse. It doesn't mean to dip. doesn't mean to pour. It means to immerse. always means to immerse. It doesn't mean, sorry, it doesn't mean to sprinkle. It means to immerse or to dip something. It never means to sprinkle, and it never means to pour. And had our English Bibles been translated instead of transliterated there at that word, it would always read, I immerse in water, but there's coming one who will immerse you in the Holy Spirit. And they had just translated baptizo as immerse or dip instead of baptize, which is a transliteration of a Greek word, then there would never be any confusion among Christians as to the mode or manner of baptism. Would there? Because you would be hard pressed to read, I immerse you in water, but there's coming one who's going to immerse you in the Spirit of God, and then walk away and say, I think he's talking about pouring and sprinkling there myself. You'd be hard pressed to do that. Because it is baptizo, which means to dunk, to immerse. So what is Jesus saying? Or what is John saying? I dunk you in water. That's why in John chapter 3 it mentions there was much water in that place where John was baptizing. I dunk you in water. I immerse you in water. I dip you in water. But there's one coming who is going to dunk, dip, immerse you in the Spirit. What is he speaking of? Some have said he's speaking of Christian baptism with which the Holy Spirit is associated and connected. I don't think he's describing Christian baptism because you don't get the Spirit of God at Christian baptism. You get the Spirit of God at the moment of faith. So I don't think he's talking about or foreshadowing Christian baptism, that is what we do, baptizing believers, as a symbol of our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Some have said this is Pentecost with all of the attendant signs, the tongues and the miracles and all the supernatural phenomena that went on at Pentecost. That's the baptism of the Spirit. And today, you and I should be seeking that and pursuing that and trying to replicate and duplicate that as often as we can. So the baptism of the Spirit then is some sort of thing that happens to you. It's a second level where you enter in your Christian life and then you get the power and the freedom from sin and attended miracles and, and uh, supernatural signs like speaking in tongues and having your own prayer language and stuff like that. And if you, and I'm not trying to diss anybody. If you come from a charismatic or Pentecostal background, then you're familiar with that sort of understanding of the baptism of the Spirit of God. I think the problem with that understanding is that it confuses uh, the cause with the effects. The baptism of the Spirit of God is not the tongues and the power of the Spirit of God at Pentecost. The baptism of the Spirit of God was what created Pentecost. The baptism of the Spirit of God was the birth of the church when believers were baptized, that is, immersed into the body of Christ, and the bride of Christ was formed. And the Spirit of God came to indwell His church, different than the nation of Israel, indwell His church in power, in spirit, and the body was formed. And then as you and I, some people would say this happens every time a believer is 
uh, comes to faith in Christ, they enter into that body and are baptized in the Spirit of God. Others would say this baptism in the Spirit of God was all who would believe that happened before the foundation of the world or and was manifested the day of Pentecost. Others would say it happened at the day of Pentecost. I'm not going to get into any of that. Suffice to say that I think that the baptism of the Spirit of God is described and defined in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and it says we are all in one body baptized to the Spirit of God, baptized into the body of Christ. We have all been baptized by one Spirit into one body and have been made to drink from one Spirit. That is the creation of the body of Christ. So there is this spiritual entity made up of individual Christians who come together. We are indwelt individually and corporately by the Spirit of God. He is building together the body of Christ, the temple of God, which is the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. We are wooed by the Spirit of God. We are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Then we are empowered by the Spirit of God, filled by the Spirit of God, gifted by the Spirit of God, used and sanctified by the Spirit of God, and ultimately will be glorified by the Spirit of God. How would you describe that in one phrase? You have been immersed into the Spirit of God as a work of Jesus Christ. There is coming one who would pour out His Spirit upon His church and create a spiritual entity in which you and I would be placed. And in being placed into that body, we are immersed, we are dipped, we are dumped right into the Spirit of God because this is the spiritual household of faith. And every individual who is part of the body of Christ is immersed, dunked, in the Spirit of God. Who did that? Jesus did that. The Spirit of God did that. Jesus has immersed us in the body of Christ and put us into His spiritual household of faith. That's the baptism of the Spirit. There's one coming after me. I baptize you in water, but there's one coming who is going to baptize with a greater baptism. And it's not going to be repentance. It is going to be the one who will plunge you into the Spirit of God and put you in His body, which is a spiritual entity. So that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So we looked at Jesus as a sacrifice. Jesus is supreme. Jesus and the Spirit. Now look at verse 34. Jesus and His Sonship. And we're running out of time for this, and I don't regret that because we had to deal with the other things, and we are going to have ample opportunity to talk about the Sonship of Jesus and all of its ramifications. Just a couple of clarifying thoughts before we close. Some would say, heretics, I believe, would say that Jesus became the Son at His baptism. He didn't. He eternally existed as the Son. Gnostics would say that Jesus became the Son at the moment of His baptism. He lived a pure life from that moment forward, but not before that. But from that moment forward, He lived a pure life. And then He ceased being divine on the cross when God poured out the sin or the wrath upon sin upon His Son. So he was divine from the moment of his baptism until the crucifixion, but not before and not after that. And that is wrong. Jesus didn't become the Son at his baptism. Jesus was eternally the Son. And John testifies and bears witness in verse 34, this is the Son of God. And this is the first time that Jesus is called the Son of God in the Gospel. It's in keeping with John's purpose, which he says at the end, I write these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. This is the same confession in verse 49 of chapter 1 that Nathaniel would come to when he says, Rabbi, we believe you're the Son of God and the King of Israel. This is a confession all the way through the book of John. And this is going to be, listen, the major controversy with the Pharisees later on in the book when Jesus says, I am the Son of God. The Pharisees understood that as a claim to deity, which it was, because every son shared nature with his father. And for Jesus to call himself the Son of God was to say, I have the same nature as my father. That is, I have the same nature as God, who is my father, and as His Son, I am equal to Him in nature, which was a claim to deity. Which is why, when Jesus claimed to be the Son, the Jews picked up stones to th- stone Him. 
And Jesus said, why are you picking up stones to stone me? Was it some work, good work that I did? And they said, no. They understood it. They said, no, you, being a mere man, make yourself out to be God. And here's John the Baptist saying, this one, the Lamb of God, is the one who will baptize in the Spirit of God. This one is the Son of God. Now, friends, that's our Savior. That's our Savior. The sufficient substitute and sacrifice for our sin. The one who is supreme and preeminent above all else. The one who is intimately related and connected to the Spirit of God who places us into that body. And the one who is himself the Son of God. And as such, he is worthy of our confidence and he is worthy of our obedience and he is worthy of our faith. Because when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are not placing our faith in a mere man. We're not placing our faith in somebody who's a little bit lower than God. By placing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are placing our faith in the one who is God himself. Because this is the Son of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You that we have been able to enjoy this fellowship around Your Word and to be able to stretch our minds and put them upon things that we don't often think of. We do ask, God, that of all that has been said, that only those things which are honoring to You and clear to us may remain in our hearts and minds and that You would use these things and Your Word to sanctify us according to Your truth and to instruct us in it. We thank You for the blessing that it is to be called to be part of this body of Christ, which is the spiritual entity and the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. We thank you for the privilege that it is to be baptized by the Spirit and to know such a wonderful Savior. It is in His name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.